Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. Skincare. It doesn't sound like a performance topic, but a healthy athlete is a fast athlete, and that goes for your skin too. How many of you have lost training time due to saddle sores, road rash, or blisters? Even more important, how many of you have annual skincare checks to look for the cancerous growths that plague those who spend countless hours in the sun? Every endurance sports athlete has to endure the miles on our bodies, and our skin has to endure those miles too. In today's episode, we talk with dermatologist Dr. Layla Lancarini about how to best protect ourselves from the sun, while also getting the benefits we need from sun exposure. But we also dive deep with her into some of the touchier skin issues like saddle sores, blisters, and road rash. Joining Dr. Lancarini, Dr. Andy Pruitt will also share some of his thoughts on the most common skin issues in endurance athletes. We'll also hear the strategies employed by Coach Ryan Bolton and national champion cyclist Stephen Hyde. So, take care of your body's biggest organ, and let's make you fast. Hey, Fast Talk listeners, this is Rob Pickles. Wouldn't it be cool to decide what Trevor and I are going to talk about on an upcoming show? Or how about we answer a question on polarized training you've been dying to know? What about a 30-minute Zoom call with me or Trevor on your favorite sports endurance topic? This is all possible when you become a Fast Talk Patreon member. We have four monthly memberships to fit your level of support. If you enjoy Fast Talk, help us stay independent and dishing out your favorite sports science topics by becoming a Fast Talk Patreon member today at patreon.com slash fasttalkpodcast. Well, welcome to Fast Talk, everybody. Layla, great to have you join us. We're really excited to talk with you about this particular topic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Trevor, this is a different one for us today. You know, usually we're, uh, we're what? We're diving into the science of endurance performance. And today we're talking about skincare. Yeah. And in some regard, that might not be a performance topic. We're not talking about how to make your skin more aerodynamic today, un- unless you have tips for that. No. <laughs> But we oftentimes we talk about health, and in my opinion, uh, skin care uh, and skin health is really, really important to endurance athletes because we spend so much time in the sun, we spend so much time in the water, we spend so much time crashing our bikes that I think it's really important uh, that we do a great job taking care of ourselves uh, in the long run because ultimately, if we can reduce some problems, maybe that means we train more, and that helps our endurance performance. So I'm going to start this one out. I'm going to share a story just to give our audience an idea of how important this is. Because as you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I try to eat right. I try to exercise. So I recently had my 50th birthday, which meant getting all my tests done. And the doctor sent me to a dermatologist. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be great. They're going to tell me my skin is, is fantastic. So first thing they did is they looked at this mole on my shoulder and went, well, you got a melanoma. Now we got to cut a big chunk out of your shoulder which was no fun. And then they pointed out all these wrinkles in my arm and went, start using sunscreen, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're good at being honest. (laughs) So it was a kind of an eye-opener of, yeah, I take care of all these other things, but I haven't been taking care of this and and look what happens. So, Leela, we're going to have talk about all sorts of sides of skincare, but is there anywhere you'd like to start this? It's just kind of general advice to athletes who are out in the sun a lot. Well, touching base on what you just said, like 
the importance of yearly skin checks, especially for those that are exposed to the sun almost 24-7 when they're training or depending on where they live, is of utmost importance is having a trained eye to look you over and have a complete skin exam to catch things early so that they aren't a problem down the line for your health. And so 50, that's a great age to start making a skin exam part of your yearly preventative screening. But I do encourage people who are in their 20s and 30s to start doing it as a baseline, and especially if they're in it. I mean, the skin is the largest organ, and it is the most abused organ, if you think about it. You know, we don't always wear the sunscreen like we should because we think, oh, we're only outside for 20, 30 minutes. No big deal. But it's an accumulation of all that sun that finally catches up with people after a certain age. Yeah, I know for me, I'm in my early 40s, 41. I've been getting skincare checks regularly for a few years now because I'm pretty much the whitest Portuguese person in the world. Uh, And so I don't go tanning. I go reddening pretty much my life. So it's always been an important topic to me because it's it's not something, you know, it's not a a direction that I want to go down, at least in terms of sun-related skincare issues. Yeah. I have some some questions related to kind of endurance athletes and exercise and, and how exercise maybe changes skin physiology. I know from my thermal physiology side of things that the body diverts more blood flow to the skin um, to help with cooling purposes. With that blood flow change or anything else with exercise, how does the physiology and the skin change between an athlete and a non-athlete? Is being an athlete healthy for you? Does it not make a difference? Absolutely. No, it makes a huge difference. You know, like we tell our children, like eat well, sleep well, exercise, all of that will contribute to your overall health, right? When you have increased blood flow, you are bringing oxygen to those skin cells and you are bringing nutrients to those skin cells. And so, and then, you know, on the flip side, that blood flow then carries away the waste products, including free radicals. And now you've got this post-workout glow, if you will, and, you know, you're just skin overall is healthy. And then not only that, you now have you know, a stress release, right? And stress causes a lot of problems in our skin. It can cause an an exacerbation of acne, psoriasis, eczema. And when you work out, you reduce your stress levels, which overall contributes to that inflammatory process that some people have. The other thing I think would be worth pointing out, and you can certainly talk more to this, is they've shown that sun exposure on the skin is an oxidative stress and having some sort of oxidative defense is going to help. And exercise, particularly endurance exercise, does upregulate nitric oxide. It, it, it helps produce some of those antioxidants that are going to protect your skin a little more. Absolutely. But, and then too much of a good thing is a bad thing, right? So right. <laughs> if you're not protecting your skin during your endurance, you know, training, then you're actually causing more problems. You know, we talked about vitamin D being important. Too much sun actually is a detriment to your vitamin D production. So I think there's this balance that athletes need to keep in mind and to protect themselves during that process. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that balance in a little bit, but I want to start with where you were going. Too much sun for the endurance athlete is there ever too much of a good thing? How does too much sun, you know, physically affect the skin, right? Because we have these rays that I can't see, you know, shooting down from the sun. And I always think of sunburns. I don't know if it's that simple, but where are we going with too much damage because you're in the sun all the time? 
So if you're in the sun all the time, you are getting the UVA and the UVB exposure, right? And so you've got UVB causing sunburns, which can ultimately lead to skin cancer down the line. And then you've got UVA, which causes photo aging. So now you're talking about wrinkles, sunspots, and that nature. So if you have too much UVB and UVA exposure and you're not protecting your skin against those harmful rays, over time, it's going to lead to long-term problems. So that's what I mean by too much sun exposure. Sure. You can be in the sun, you just got to protect it, you know? It's interesting that the two different UV rays, A and B, so I think that you said UVB was maybe a shorter wavelength and A was a longer wavelength, that they have, you know, very different long-term results within the skin. How does UVB, the shorter wavelength, how does that actually cause burn and then eventually skin cancer thereafter? So your UVB rays have more energy and it damages the DNA in the skin cells. When you have DNA mutations in the skin cells, eventually those mutations will cause those skin cells to grow out of control and develop a mass of tumor. And so it's UVB that's the most harmful ray for our athletes and for people in general who like to be exposed to the sun. In terms of the UVA, yeah, it's not as damaging to the skin, but you're going to start to see the aging side effects, the wrinkles, the sunspots, the the crepiness of the skin. You know, people start to complain about why is my skin so thin and crepey? It's because you're losing that collagen and elasticity from the harmful rays. If I remember correctly, UVB really only penetrates the epidermis, which is that upper layer where Correct. UVA Correct. can actually get down into the, the dermis, the, the primary layer. And that's where the collagen is going to be right deeper into the skin and the dermis Correct. layer. Interesting. And that's, yeah, that's where you get that skin aging problem because it is going deep into the collagen. I remember that page from the biology textbook years and years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So I think we need to flip this around, though, and talk about the fact that sun exposure is also healthy. We do need it. And I think everybody knows about vitamin D. But there's other benefits, such as releasing beta endorphins that you get from from sun exposure. You really can't get any other way. You can't. I mean, like we had talked about vitamin D production being important, right? It's good for your immune system. It's good for your, uh, you know, formation of your epidermal barrier. It's good for mood. It's good for basically cellular growth and repair. So you need a certain amount of vitamin D. And the literature shows that you don't need more than 10 minutes of sun exposure to get the proper synthesis of vitamin D. Vitamin D also helps with calcium absorption and maintaining phosphorus levels in our bloodstream, which then promotes normal bone mineralization, which we need as athletes, as we know. Um, but studies also show that if you go beyond 10 minutes, sometimes that sunshine can actually inhibit vitamin D synthesis. And so I tell my patients, yes, get a little bit of exposure, but you don't need more than 10 minutes. Don't let that be your excuse. You know, I'm, at, I'm in it all day to get my vitamin D. That's absolutely false. You only need 10 minutes. And I tell my patients, a lot of times they can get their vitamin D, not only in their 10 minutes of sun exposure, but they can get it through foods. They can get it through vitamin D fortified orange juice, milk, certain fishes like sardines and salmon. They're all full of vitamin D. And so it doesn't all have to come from the sunshine. 
When you say 10 minutes, are you, is that 10 minutes of like unprotected sun? If you're got SPF 90 on, uh, it probably longer than 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally you want to get out before 10 AM or after 4 PM because between those hours is when you've got the highest UV exposure, right? You're still getting a UV exposure, but it's just at its peak between 10 and 4. So you really want to get out there, you know, 8 in the morning to do your walk without sunscreens, fine. Just no more than 10 minutes, though. What other quick thing to, to mention? I'm not sure this helps the conversation too much, but it's just an interesting fact. Calling it vitamin D actually is a bit of a misnomer. It's not actually a vitamin. It is a hormone. So vitamins are something that you have to get from your diet. And vitamin D, we can produce enough. So it's not actually a vitamin. Whatever, Trevor. Gosh. I had to throw my little fact. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so going back to my brief story about my, my horrible visit to the dermatologist that I did to myself, you, you might appreciate this. I found out the biopsy they took of my mole became the talk of the U.S. dermatology world. It got sent all over the country because really? nobody could figure out what was going on. And the funny thing was I could have told them right away. Basically, somebody in San Francisco figured it out that I had a mole growing on top of a mole. Oh, that's odd. The, well, the reason was I had a normal mole on my shoulder and I crashed in a bike race and skinned my shoulder, took most of the mole off, but not all of it. So another kind of bad mole that became cancerous grew on top of it. Sorry, I had to, had to share that story. But I can tell you going to the doctor and having them tell me you've got a melanoma was actually kind of a scary experience. Sure. So I know that's one of the concerns and the risks. So can you talk a little bit about that side of the sun exposure, the cancer risk? Yeah. So like in my practice, most of the skin cancers I see fall under one of three categories. You've got basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and of course, melanoma. I'd say basal cell and squamous cell are the two most common routine skin cancers that we pick up. And that's usually due from too, too much you know, sun exposure or an accumulation of sun exposure. Melanoma, there are thoughts that it's not just environmental, that it could be genetic. And so you know, in terms of severity of cancers, melanoma is the most severe. It can go pretty quickly and it can take your life, unfortunately. Squamous cell is not as aggressive, but it can, you know, get down into the lymph nodes and travel to other parts of the body and eventually hurt somebody long term. And then, of course, basal cell is just skin deep. And so there are different risk factors for developing any one of those three, you know, fair skin, light eyes, light hair, the white out Portuguese guy over here, <laughs> Rob, you know, <laughs> you know, you are definitely at more of a risk. And let's say somebody who has a little bit more melanin in their skin or in their eyes or in their hair, a history of sunburns, and it doesn't have to be recent sunburns, even a bad sunburn in childhood. <laughs> eventually those cells that, you know, got damaged at five, six, seven, whatever your age can eventually turn into skin cancer down the line because it takes time for these cancers to develop. They don't just show up suddenly. Excessive exposure to the UV, you know, to the sun, to tanning boots. That's the biggest no-no in my book and most dermatologist books. If you use a tanning booth just one time, it increases your risk for skin cancer 25% just that one time. High altitudes, you know, living in Colorado, of course, you're at a higher altitude, closer to the sun. And, you know, it's sunny, what, 300 days of the year? Not recently, I'll tell you that. 
<laughs> family history. You know, if you've got a, a strong history, mom, dads, cousins, brothers, anybody that has a history of skin cancer, you know, being that it could be a genetic component to it, that increases someone's risk to developing cancer. A weakened immune system, you know, or being on certain medications that lower the immune system. There's certain like biologics that people take for their chronic rheumatoid arthritis or their psoriasis that you're lowering the immune system to reduce the inflammatory response. But in doing so, you are increasing your risk of developing skin cancer potentially. And then the last side note is people who have been exposed to arsenic. People used to drink out of well water or um, have trace levels of arsenic for whatever reason, a husband's trying to poison the wife or vice versa, that can increase the risk of skin cancer. <laughs> so this actually really surprised me. I did kind of dig into the research to see what was out there with athletes. And certainly, I know, I know you'll talk a little bit about this, people involved in water sports and surprisingly people involved in winter sports, a lot of research showing increased risk. But there was a study done in 2020, so only a couple of years ago in Spain, where they even say in the introduction, they were surprised that they are the first study of cyclists and sun exposure. And so they surveyed about a thousand cyclists in um, Spain and were shocked to see that a little over 3% of them had had a melanoma, which is way, way, way above the, the normal population average. So it's a very real risk. Oh, it's a definitely huge risk. I mean, I had a mole in my early 20s that was changing. Uh, it, I got it removed and it was borderline melanoma. And so it was kind of an eye-opening for me because I, you know, I abused the sunshine growing up. I did a tanning booth here and there. I didn't know I was going to do this for a living. And You dabbled in the tanning booth? I did. I did. And I mean, who did it? It was the 80s and 90s, you know? But you didn't inhale. <laughs> I didn't inhale. <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, you think back, like, God, I was stupid. I did all this stupid stuff thinking I was invisible or it, this only happens to old people, you know, and it's just, we do stupid things when we're younger. Or we are maybe too lazy to think about putting it on every day because it's such a chore, you know, and it's very important. Just, it takes a few minutes, you know? Triathletes deal with a lot of things that affect their skin. They deal with sun exposure, but they also deal with pool water which can really dry out the skin. So let's hear from triathlon coach Ryan Bolton and his thoughts on protection from both the sun and the water. When I was a kid, I grew up in the generation where, you know, we tried to get as like a tan as possible. And I think I'm regretting it now that I'm <laughs> nearing 50 years of age. But uh, my athletes, it's a conversation I have just because of, and I think being in Kona, a big part of when you're training and racing here is protecting yourself from the solar gain. And by doing that is like by putting on like heavy, heavy sunscreen. And I mean, it's, it's critical because once you start getting you know, a burn on your skin or anything like that, I mean, performance is going to start going down. It's something that I preach to my athletes all the time on a personal level. Now I'm really, really adamant. Maybe it's from vanity about moisturizing after being in the pool in chlorine, but also just, I mean, chlorine with, you know, anything with, with clothes, with my hair, with skin, because I do feel like, especially if you're in it all the time, it really, really beats you up. But with my athletes, I find the same thing. And I think younger athletes now are way more in tune with it than I was when I was young. And they're really taking care of themselves more after exposing themselves to those conditions too. 
Let's move on because right now you're my least favorite guest because uh, out of everything you mentioned, I'm, I'm batting like 75%. So let's move on <laughs> from all of the risk factors. Fair. You know, everybody knows that you should wear sunscreen, right? Everybody knows that you should eat your vegetables too. Not enough people do it. You know, so I would love to get on to the how do you protect yourself from the sun topic and, you know, for me, I oftentimes think of, of sunscreen, whether that's chemical or mineral, or maybe, you know, I came from the apparel world. Maybe it's apparel that you're wearing to protect you. So let's start with the sunscreen side of things. How does sunscreen play into this equation? And I'm particularly interested in how does sunscreen match up to UVA and UVB protection? Is that something that we need to be thinking about as consumers? Or do we just let the sun care you know, company take care of that and we just buy the product off the shelf? Absolutely not. Okay. So basically you've got your UVA and you've got your UVB and we've already discussed how the UVB causes the sunburns and the UVA causes basically your aging, right? So when you're looking for sunscreens, there's two types, there's a mineral and there's a chemical. What's the difference? Well, <laughs> I keep it simple. I tell my patients, if you cannot pronounce the ingredient, it's probably a chemical, right? <laughs> so you're talking the, it's true. It's oxybenzone, it's avobenzone, it's parabens, it's hom, you know, homosylate. If it's a mineral, you're talking zinc and titanium oxide. That's it. We keep it simple with minerals. So I encourage patients to go with the mineral sunscreen over the chemical. Now, chemicals are more readily available and they're usually cheaper, but in my opinion, what makes mineral better is it actually provides a physical barrier. So think of that layer that you just put on of the mineral sunscreen, that UVA and UVB is not going to get absorbed into the skin. It's actually going to reflect. It's like an armor. So nothing is coming through. Versus a chemical sunscreen, you are basically absorbing the UV rays and converting it to heat in the sun. So, or in the skin, excuse me, so that you're still going to get color, you're still going to get damage, maybe not as much, but there's still damage happening with chemical sunscreens potentially. With mineral, you're, you're more protected. Interesting. So let me, let me get this straight. The chemical sunscreens that are going to absorb into your skin what you're saying is the UVA and the UVB rays actually enter your skin as well, but the chemical sunscreen converts that from a UVA or a UVB into heat, presumably before it is able to do damage or, or deep enough, but it obviously has entered your skin, so it's going to do some damage before it gets converted. Yes, a bit, but you're absolutely right. You're taking those harmful rays and you're converting it to heat, and so we're hoping that that chemical sunscreen is going to prevent DNA damage in the skin cells, right? Because it's no longer a harmful ray. So, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard and the athletes, you know, I've heard a couple of years ago, there was this whole hoopla over the safety of chemical sunscreen. And there's no, there hasn't been to date any conclusive evidence saying that chemical sunscreens cause cancer. I think there was concern that maybe it was causing reproductive of hormonal issues but there has been no evidence to show that. And then in my opinion, the risk of not wearing sunscreen is greater than the potential risk of what's it doing for your overall health. And I'm sure people would argue, but... Yeah, there's maybe a lot of people whom 
you know, mineral sunscreens seem like they're a bit more expensive. Maybe people can't afford that. And so they go with a chemical sunscreen. And I think that maybe some people were thinking, well, I just, I shouldn't wear sunscreen because the sunscreen's bad for me. But in this case, I think it's pretty clear that wear sunscreen. If it's chemical, it's chemical. It's better than doing nothing without question. So I'm, I'm probably the only one here re- old enough to remember this, but uh, they didn't used to call it sunscreen. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was actually called suntan lotion because of what you were talking about. People had used the chemical, and the idea was they still wanted to get their tan, but they didn't want to burn. Nobody was concerned about cancer or skin health back then. It was it was all about tanning. It was red didn't look good, so... Right. right. You know, talking about the protective clothing that you touched based on, like, yeah, same thing. It's like a mineral sunscreen in the sense that you've got this tightening knit fiber that is providing an amount of protection because now again, those rays cannot come through those fibers if you're wearing a long sleeve rash guard, right? So, you know, is it easier just to throw on a rash guard than to have to sit there and reapply sunscreen every couple hours? Absolutely. But, you know, again, it's, it's user's preference. Not everyone wants to wear a long sleeve shirt when they're in the the water. (laughs) Hey listeners. We have exciting news to share from Hit Science, the leaders in high-intensity interval training education. Right now, Hit Science is offering a free course for coaches called The Science and Application of Endurance Training Using AI Platforms. This course includes Smart Coach AI and Hit Science-driven workout suggestions for triathlon, running, and cycling events. Visit hitscience.com. That's H-I-I-T-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com and enter your free course through the pop-up window. So this is, I know, one of the myths, and I want to throw this at you. It's everybody thinks you should wear light-colored clothing, but it's actually the dark-colored clothing that's more protective, right? Correct. So your dark fabric color is actually more protective than your light fabric color. It absorbs more heat, perhaps, but you're deflecting those rays better. And then, of course, you want to go with more densely knit fibers and not loosely knit fibers. Because, again, if it's loosely knit, you've got more penetration into the skin of those rays. Yeah, I think that we've all either been the person or seen the person that wore a mesh jersey and ended up with a beautiful sunburn on their back. Usually your bib strap area is fine, so you get a very odd sunscreen on your back. But, you know, if anybody is looking for clothing that is specifically designed or at least fabric that's been tested, then look for a UPF rating, right? We're all familiar with SPF being associated with a sunscreen, but UPF is the rating that's used uh, when we're talking about a fabric, a physical, you know, soft goods barrier. Right. So the other issue with sunscreen, besides which one to get, is I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not meant to last all day long. So, you know, I've got people are like, oh, I put on my sunscreen, but they put it on at eight in the morning and then they wonder why they're toast by 4 p.m. Even if it says water resistant, sunscreen is only meant to last 90 minutes. And I try as a general rule of thumb to tell people you need to reapply it every two hours because you're either going to sweat it off, rub it off, swim it off. And so it's really important to reapply, which is the part that most people fail at because, again, it takes time, it's messy, etc. And then the other part of the problem is no one ever puts enough on. You know, we do a very thin 
half-ass film on our skin. And again, it's not covering everything. So for the face, you want at least a nickel-sized dollop. And then for the body, you need at least either two shot glasses or two tablespoons of sunscreen. And that's every two hours you have to do that amount. So but that's the, the last question I wanted to ask you about the, the sunscreen. Going back to that study that I cited, you know, I think it was over 80% of the, the people surveyed said, yeah, they understood that sunscreen was important, that they needed to do it to protect their skin. But only 39% use sunscreen. And including some of the people who had had melanoma still didn't use sunscreen. So mm-hmm. how do you yeah. convince people that this is something you need to do? Because I think you're right. Most people go, it's, it's an inconvenience. I'm fine. I just scare people to death. <laughs> pictures, disgusting pictures. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I'll just use my kids, for example. I do what I do. We live in Austin, Texas. We have a pool. So we're in it. You know, we're all in it. And at a very young age, I showed the children what melanoma and squamous cell and basal cell looks like. And it's not all pretty, right? And it can disfigure you and it can kill you. It can do all the things. And I thought, well, maybe I can just scare them into using it. <laughs> And now, you know, that they're their own agents, they put it on without me even reminding them. And they're really good about it. And so it's like brushing your teeth. You know, you educate and you tell people at a younger age to start thinking about it more than maybe our generation who, you know, we didn't have sunscreen. We had suntan lotion or we didn't put on sunscreen until after the fact that we were already burnt. And so I think the general public, especially the younger generation, they have a better knowledge about the harmful effects of the sun more so than us. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit deeper about sunscreen, not suntan lotion or sunblock. That was, that was the term I feel like when I was a kid, it was sunblock and and that's probably a misnomer. Let's talk a little bit more about sunscreens and how the ingredients affect UVA and UVB. Like, like I'm thinking we have zinc oxide and titanium oxide. Is there there a reason that we have both? Do we need both? If we just, if we don't care if we look old and we just want to avoid cancer, do we go for one ingredient? When we're standing at the shelf looking at the 120 different options in front of us, how do we choose the one that's that's best for us? All right, this is what I tell my patients. So you want to choose a broad spectrum sunscreen, something that's going to cover both UVA and UVB, right? So that's number one. And most sunscreens will say that on the label. Second, you want to choose an SPF between 30 and 50. And this goes for chemical or mineral. So I usually say between 30 and 50 is all you need. Anything above 50 SPF is only going to protect your skin 1% more from the harmful effects. I don't know if it's worth the trouble or the expense, honestly. And so I keep it simple. Between 30 and 50, UVA and UVB, which is going to be labeled on your sunscreen bottle as broad spectrum protection. And then forget the water resistance. Forget like, you know, dermatologist tested. That's all garbage. (laughs) The problem is no one reapplies. And so when you're standing in front of the shelf and you got all these options in front of you, 30 to 50, UVA and UVB, and that's it. Now, in terms of what's better, mineral for sure, and titanium and zinc oxide are both ingredients. Do you need to have both on your label? No, one or the other will suffice. They're both minerals and they're both providing that physical protection so that nothing penetrates through to the skin. Great. In, in terms of individual ingredients, obviously you brought up some, some health care or some health concerns, some endocrine concerns that people were worried about. 
maybe there's nothing conclusive at this point, but we also hear about things like uh, reef safe and other terms like that. Mm -hmm. Is there anything deeper that people ought to be looking for beyond broad spectrum, 30 to 50 and those details? Okay. So if you're traveling to Hawaii or Australia where, you know, reef safety is important, basically what that means is don't bring any chemicals into our country <laughs> or our state. So chemicals is what's the problem with the reefs. So it it's harmful to the reefs life cycle. So that basically means you're looking for a mineral sunscreen when you're traveling to a reef safe beach. And that's, it's just that simple. It's just that simple. Great. So mineral is the answer no matter what. Honestly, that's how I look at it. Like in our household, we use strictly mineral. My daughter's really sensitive to chemicals. She always gets a weird rash when she tries someone else's sunscreen. So we just keep it simple in our house. We do mineral, some easy drugstore brands that, you know, are easy for our guests who are listening to look for. CeraVe, Cetaphil, Aveeno, Eucerin, Neutrogena, all of these products that I'm mentioning, they all make mineral sunscreen. And some of them make a hybrid. Some of them make like a part mineral, part chemical hybrid sunscreen. Why is that important? Most people will complain, oh, well, the zinc or the titanium is too thick and I look like a mime when I wear it. It's formulated a lot better these days where it doesn't give you that white pasty look. You just rub it in and it goes sheer into the skin so you don't look crazy. So we've come a long way with, the way we formulate sunscreen these days so that people will use it, you know? Most important thing. One thing that I want to throw out there, and and this is combining a couple things that we're talking about, and, and that's the reapplication. I will say that I try to use mineral sunscreen, especially in my daily life. And oftentimes at the beginning of rides or runs, I'll put on a mineral sunscreen. But when I take sunscreen with me, and oftentimes I do because I'm doing longer rides, I'm not going to lie, I, I oftentimes take a chemical sunscreen with me for that because it's just so much easier to reapply when you're sweaty and have a little bit of dirt on you and everything else. So I think I have a, a little travel tube of like banana boat or something like that that hangs out in my uh, handlebar bag on my gravel bike. Well, this is what I say, like anything is better than nothing, right? And so like I've got a lot of patients who play tennis or golf where I practice because most of them are retired and can do those things all day long. And I say, okay, first thing in the morning, that sunscreen should be thought of as lotion, right? Don't think of it as sunscreen. Just think of like, okay, I just got out of the shower. My skin's dry. Let me put some of this lotion on. Okay. So you've got your application from that head to toe. Then you're out golfing or playing tennis. And now you're like, oh, okay, she said, I need to reapply this every two hours. How am I going to do that without my hands getting all greasy or slick? And now I can't hold my golf club or I can't hit properly the tennis racket with the tennis racket. So pack the chemical or mineral, if they make it, sunscreen spray and reapply with the spray. Because you're right, you don't have to touch it now, okay? You just spray, get a good thin layer, don't let it half of it go in the air, <laughs> get it on the skin and that's your reapplication. It's better than nothing. Is it as good as rubbing the cream on? Probably not, but it's better than nothing. I feel for the athletes out there, like I've been to many races that my husband's done and I'm sitting there going, oh, they have no time. They're in it to win it. There's no time to sit there and reapply properly, right? And I wish like in the transition zones, it would be genius. I know it's going to cost a ton of money, but it'd be genius if they have like some sort of like 
spray that just comes at you <laughs> as you're passing through that transition zone. It's like the mister at the restaurant, right? You just run through it. It's like a car wash. That'd be amazing. Exactly. I just, I mean, that would be great, but I'm sure it costs a ton of money to have that continuously spray, you know? I but love it. I love it. That would be a way to, you know, offset that time it takes for these athletes to reapply yeah. as they should. I love it. Perfect. I think that the the theme of this episode is it's better than nothing, you know? <laughs> yes. Anything's better than nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I think another important point to make, which uh, would love it if you, you expanded on this, is certainly hope we've scared people enough to get them to use sunscreen, to get them to use protection, but not so much that you avoid the sun, because I, I do think it's it's important to remind everybody getting sun exposure is important. And there have been studies that show that that people who avoid the sun tend to see higher rates of, of all-cause mortality. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm not impractical. I'm not a hermit crab. I am out. I want my my family. I want my friends. I want my patients to stay active, right? That's more important than staying inside, being scared of the sun. Getting outdoors, getting that vitamin D, staying active, releasing those endorphins. It's all important to our general well-being. Protect yourself. That's it. You know, you want to go have fun, have fun, but just protect yourself. It's not that hard. Well, that's a lot about the sun. And I, I do want to say that um, when I'm out riding my bike and doing other sports, I do tend to run into some other issues uh, that go beyond the sun. And so I'd, I'd love to shift gears a little bit. And I don't know, I don't know if people want to listen to us talk about this stuff, but I know for a lot of people when they're out riding their bike a lot, maybe for uh, multiple days, um, especially if they're not good about doing their laundry, then uh, a quote-unquote saddle sore can be, you know, a, <laughs> a very demanding topic for the cyclists among us. <laughs> I don't want to ask this, but do you, do you see saddle sores in your practice? I do. I see a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> let's, let's talk about those babies. You know, what, what, what the heck is a saddle sore? How do we treat these things? Let's get them out of our lives. Okay. So a saddle sore is when you're sitting on your sit bones, right? So you've got your technical term is ischial tuberosities. That is the bottom of your pelvis area that penetrates onto that saddle, right? So you're putting pressure on that saddle and it's causing this weight-bearing frictional problem, right, at that ischial tuberosity or sit bones. And it causes a reduction basically in your barrier when you have all that friction, especially if you're sweating to death or if you've got a poor-fitting saddle in the first place, right? So that's important to have the right size saddle for your bum. But also, are you wearing a chamois? Are you wearing a bike short that has the padding that will protect you from that frictional uh, mechanics? Um, so a, get a proper saddle that fits your touch. <laughs> B, get a cycling short that has a good chamois in the middle and C, I think a barrier cream is everything, you know, like almost like a diaper rash cream, a barrier cream that has the zinc oxide, maybe some petrolatum and maybe an antifungal component to it, like desitin or A&D ointment, applying that to your inguinal creases or anywhere that there's folds and friction that's going to cause sweat and bacteria to harbor is important to prevent that. Yeah. So with that saddle sore, is it an actual infection that's occurring in the, the skin? What, what's happening there? 
I mean, it can. So if you've got this bone that's just constantly grinding against, you know, the flesh of, of your skin, I mean, besides a sore, you can get like um, an abscess or a, a pimple that's really sore there. But if it breaks down the actual skin, like if think of it as a callus, if you will, you can introduce an opening in the barrier, which then introduces your skin to a bacterial infection or a fungal infection. So it really just all depends how much trauma has happened to the skin in that area. Yeah, I think the general chafing for cyclists is bad news in general. I oftentimes have relied on formulations that I've bought, you know, from companies like uh, Mad Alchemy. I'll throw that name out there. You know, it's interesting, your your homebrew one uh, that you mentioned there using some, some desitin, maybe I think I heard a topical antibiotic in there. Well, that's super interesting. You a chafing guy, Trevor? You chafe over there, Trevor? <laughs> I used to a ton. I mean, I before I learned all the tricks, I, I always had some sort of saddle short going on. And, you know, chamois technology has also improved. But some of the things I've learned, wash your chamois all the time. When I have talked to people who have constant saddle sores, I, first question I ask them, how often do you wash your chamois? And I usually get an answer like, oh, every third or fourth use. And you go, no. yeah. You're, That's you're, nasty. It's pretty nasty. <laughs> Well, and from what I understand is because, I mean, I spin, but I don't wear chamois. I probably should, but you're not supposed to wear underwear underneath yes. the, mm -hmm. the bicycle shorts, right? And so you're right. Like you've got all this sweat and bacteria and fungus and God knows what else just sitting in your shorts. And if you're not washing it after every ride, that's just straight up nasty. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. You know, another little trick I'll give people if you're doing a lot of training or you're doing a really long ride is the double chamois. The double chamois? You wear two pairs of cycling shorts. What? So then most of the friction is between the two chamois and not between the chamois and your skin. And I can't tell you how many training camps the double chamois got me through. Wow. I have never, as somebody who has designed chamois for a company, I have never even heard of this before, Trevor. I do it all the time. And let me tell you, yes, it is a lot of padding. If I'm going out and doing a two-hour ride, I don't want to do it. But when you're out for your third six-hour ride in three <laughs> just days... just something, right? God. You, you don't regret it at all. Do you have to lower your saddle a little bit because you're now like six inches off your bike? The outer chamois that I have is a really old pair that's super thin. Uh, it's clapped out. Because of that issue. It would not be a pair of shorts I would ever wear just on their own, huh. but it's just having that little extra padding. But yeah, dropping your saddles, probably a little bit of a good idea. I've, I'm learning new things about you. Question I want to ask you, Leela, is I have talked to a lot of cyclists who get a bad saddle sore. They go and see their dermatologist and the dermatologist wants to remove it. And my experience is when you get that surgery, it's usually they regret it because they end up with a scar and that scar hurts and they're stuck with it for life. And for clarification, at this point, we're talking about something where we've moved beyond just like chafing and surface issues. And people might've felt this where now there's like a hard something or other that's kind of inside your skin and it's very painful to sit on. So basically, you know, your saddle sore could be like, like I said, what we call an abscess or a furuncle, which is just this deep pocket of basically inflammation that won't heal from that constant trauma, or you could develop scar tissue, um, you know, from again, the mechanics where you have just this hard knot, like you said, and 
when you do surgery to remove it, you're cutting these things out and stitching the area up. Well, now you could have potential loss of nerve feeling in the area. You're sitting on potential worsening of a scar. Some people develop a keloid, which is um, a red ropey scar that feels itchy and painful to touch. And so I would say surgery is your last ditch resort to removing a saddle sore. And it's never, not anything we ever want to do to somebody who's active. Let's also hear from Dr. Andy Pruitt and his thoughts about saddle sores and how to treat them. You could almost write a whole book, at least a chapter on saddle sores. Like, what are saddle sores? That's a huge category of things. So there are saddle sores that are caused by friction, a dry chamois, or dirty chamois, where you've gotten some dirt from a gravel race, for example, all of a sudden you've got friction, now you've got an abrasion, that can be a saddle sore. Long-term pressure, if you've ever heard of an, a pressure ulcer, that's when people are bedridden for a long period of time, they get ulcers on their heels and on their bottom. That's the same kind of things we sometimes can get between ourselves and our saddle, and that's a pressure sore. Um, and those have to be fixed by relieving that pressure somehow. That's either saddle change or chamois change. If they fester and become a pimple or a boil, then you treat it like a normal pimple or a boil. The key, I think, is good bike fit, good chamois choice, good laundry, good self-hygiene. Those are things the way you can prevent saddle sores. If you get them, you treat them like a wound, if you will. Whether they've opened up or not, it is still a wound. And are there specific concerns for women when it comes to skin issues on the saddle? Well, you know, we all have body oil and we all have hair down there. And in today's society, we're all treating or grooming differently. So women uh, tend to be the shaven or lasered or El Natural. Those are your three choices, right? So if you're shaving, that leaves a stubble, and that, that can be an issue. Is that stubble rubs into the chamois, and it can become an infected uh, hair follicle. So all men, men and women both bring body oils, sweat, and grime to the saddle chamois interface. But women bring some unique things to it, and, and they have vaginal discharge and urinary leakage that men typically don't bring to the chamois. So that's a whole two more bacterial sources that can add to the potential of infection of a saddle sore. So we had mentioned whether we want to talk about products. I, I will tell you, and I'm trying to avoid getting into the gross conversations, I have had some very large and very nasty saddle sores and, and have certainly uh, avoided the surgery route. But I will tell you one thing that I have found really helps and interesting your reaction to this is utter butter. Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of patients talk about that. And I mean, it works, right? Yep. Is that the same thing as bag balm? Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever, whatever it takes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, shoot, you can put Crisco for all I carry. Just whatever <laughs> it takes to prevent that from happening. <laughs> and for those of you who listen to our bike packing episode with Chris Case, Crisco might be the only thing you can find in the gas station. So... <laughs> But just in case people are wondering, back balm and, and utter butter, what they are is an ointment. So it's like Crisco, but they have antibacteria in them. But you can't use it in your pie crust. No, sorry. <laughs> it'd be pretty gross. Uh, I, I think if you guys don't mind, I would love to move on from from this yes. roast. Yeah, I was going to say maybe a less painful topic, but that topic I want to move on to is road rash. Uh, so there's pain involved in here. 
Oh, I can talk a lot to this. Right. One. Yeah. Cyclists, man, we crash. If you're Trevor, you crash more than most. So, you know, how do we deal with road rash? You know, we're not, not a cut, right? But the, your skin has kind of just been ground a little bit as you're sliding along the road. How do we take care of this? So that's considered a, a, a basically a nasty uh, abrasion, right? You've skinned yourself. You've got, well, hopefully gravel has been washed out of there after you've stood up, but you have a compromise into your epidermal barrier, right? And so I tend to keep things really simple in terms of skincare, healing ointments. I love Vaseline and I love Aquaphor. I'm, and it does wonders to heal the skin. You know, if someone's got a really bad burn, I will sometimes prescribe silver silvadine, which helps to kind of heal things faster. But I always start with Aquaphor or Vaseline and tell patients to keep that area covered so that there's less further injury to the area and allow that skin to heal. I don't know what your guys' experience is with road rashes and what you've done to make them heal faster. But like I said, I think Aquaphor and Vaseline are two great non-irritating salves that people can use to heal that skin. So let's do a hot take here. What's your opinion of Tagaderm? I like Tagaderm. What, is that what you guys have been using for it? So about what 12 years ago now, back when I was on a cycling team that was sponsored by Dr. Andy Pruitt, Yeah, he gave us a whole ton of Tagaderm. And this is before it was easy to get Tagaderm at a, at a pharmacy. So I can tell you, when we were at the race, other teams would sneak into our van and try to steal our Tagaderm. Oh, it's like gold. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. We use it in our office. Now, for those who aren't aware, Tegaderm is basically, it's, it's a medical grade adhesive plastic is maybe the best way. It's kind of like medical grade saran wrap that you just stick yeah. to your skin and, and it covers large areas. They make big pieces of Tegaderm. Your whole thigh right. has road rash on it. You can tegaderm that baby. And it kind of is like a new layer of skin, you could say, that is a barrier yes. from the outside, right? Correct, correct. And it's got like a moisturizing effect to it. It's got the antibacterial effect to it. So it kind of covers all aspects of what could possibly go wrong with your skin once you've compromised the epidermis. Just to have my, uh, I'm not just the president, I'm also a client moment. This is tagaderm <laughs> on my hand right there, now. There you go. Proud of you, Trevor. Nice. <laughs> now, can I ask, when I've used Tegaderm in the past, and you mentioned this moisturizing effect, for lack of a better term, things can get a little bit soupy inside. Is, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Should I be changing it so that it, it, we don't want things to dry out, right? But if there's like fluid, is that good or bad? I would say it's time to change it out. Like I try to, okay. yeah. I mean, again, yeah. like I know that stuff is not cheap. I know it's, it's, you know, not maybe always easily accessible, but I think a daily dressing change is always encouraged, right? So that you don't have that fluid and that maceration that can happen from that excessive moisture. So. Yeah. What I've gotten bad road rash, I have replaced the, the, the bandaging every day. Like you said, uh, address your responses. I want to keep it moist, but I want it to be new moisture. I want it to, so the tagaderm has the, the antibacterial property. And then the other thing I will say is, as painful as it is when you have that crash, clean it, clean it oh, right God, away yes. or have yeah. them clean it. I had a race where I got some bad road rash and just went final slap on the tagaderm. I did not clean it out and it got pretty bad. And I ended up 
going into the shower with a piece of steel wool and going to work on my leg. And that was not a pleasant experience. Yeah, you want to flush any of that debris out. If you can have anyone else clean your road rash for you, in my opinion, the hardest thing in the world, harder than any effort I've ever put myself through, is scrubbing my own road rash. It's inflicting pain that is so hard to do on yourself. But when I do that, and I'm interested in your thought here, I have these iodine scrubbers. One side is like an iodine sponge and the other side are like these little fingers, you know, that sort of get in there. In your medical sort of opinion, I've heard good and bad things about using iodine on abrasions. Some say it can break down and cause damage. Others are like, no, it's a great antibacterial. Should we be doing this or should we just be using soap and water? So I tend to say just use mild soap and water, but... You know, when we do surgeries uh, in our clinic for, to remove these skin cancers, we use iodine all the time as an antimicrobial, antibacterial um, prep, right? So, I mean, if you've got a road rash and you're trying to keep it clean, that finger-like thing that you just described is like your debridement, right? That's your debridement to get all the gravel, dirt, and whatever else out of there to keep it clean. And then the iodine provides that extra antimicrobial and antibacterial effect, which it might be great to do it as soon as you develop that road rash, but would I encourage people to do it on a daily basis? Absolutely not. Cause I think that can slow down the healing process. And so maybe the iodine scrub is a great, like as soon as it happens, use it, but thereafter just use mild soap and water. So before we move on, let's hear from Dr. Andy Pruitt and his thoughts on road rash and how to treat it. Staying vertical is probably the safest way to avoid uh, road rash. But if you're a cyclist, ultimately gravity is going to win the contest at some point in time. And speed actually is a bit of your friend in that if, you, if you're going a little bit faster, you tend to slide on the pavement, which dissipates the impact stress. So you don't necessarily break something. But however, your lycra soon disintegrates with the friction and the, and the heat and then your layers, one, two, three layers of skin begin to disintegrate the longer you slide. So road rash is, is inevitable, I think, if you're, if you're a cyclist. So the first thing is that, is it just road rash or is there a hematoma underneath? The hip and the elbow are the primary suspects for road rash, right? So, and both of those are fairly bony. So you can get a hematoma in the tissue, and that's a pooling of blood and, and fluids, from the impact. So if you've got road rash on top and then a hematoma, the situation is actually more serious because the bacteria from the road rash can infiltrate the hematoma and then you've got a septic potential. So I think that my first warning is, is how hard did you hit? Is this just road rash or is there a significant bruise or pooling of fluid that's occurring at the hip or at the elbow below the road rash? So that. And, and that makes it a significantly different conversation. And you should go to the emergency room, consider having the hematoma addressed as well as the road rash. So if it's just road rash, you know, you've got to get home. And that's the key part, right? So if, if, if the bicycle is still functioning or there's a follow car, you've got to get home and get in the shower. And as painful as it sounds, that road rash needs to be scrubbed. And that can be done at home with some sterile 4x4 gauze, if you will, and, and some antibiotic soap. You really need to clean out the debris. If there's discoloration 
in the wound itself. That can be asphalt oil that's come off the road. It can be grime. So you really want to pay attention to anything that's not fleshy or red, fleshy colored or red in this wound. And get that thing clean. Scrub it with a pulsating shower is really the key to get the debris out of out of that wound. Most drugstores now have some wound coverings. Uh, Tegaderm, I hate to give plugs to brands, but Tegaderm is a, a, a skin covering, a wound covering that works really, really, really well. And it's an adhesive that you put directly over the wound. And that covering can last, stay on there for several days at a time. But the wound will produce a fluid, an exudate fluid. So underneath the sealant that you've put on through the see-through dressing, there can be a buildup of, of alarming looking, but it's really benign, fluid. And so you do want to drain that out of there, whether that's poking a little hole in the, in the dressing or peeling up a little bit of dressing and draining that fluid out of there. The athlete would like to get rid of a dressing as quickly as possible, right? But the bottom line is you want to keep that wound wet, it's going to heal best if it's wet. If you allow it to scab over, it's going to take a lot longer to heal, and you're more likely to get a scar out of it if you let it dry out. So the bottom line rule for this kind of wound is if it's dry, make it wet. If it's wet, let it dry. So the happy medium is in the middle where that wound is going to heal the quickest and without scarring. Do you need to put an antibiotic ointment on it? Some say yes, some say no. Some say that ointment kind of suffocates the wound and doesn't let it air out. And, and, and so I think that if you have no signs of infection, I probably would go with a sterile dressing, sterile nonstick dressing, or a tegaderm-like seal covering after it's been cleaned. Make sure you watch for signs of infection, which would be a fever, nausea, or red streaks from the side of the wound toward your, uh, toward your groin if it's a hip, uh, towards your armpit if it's an arm. And that's really signs that there's an infection and you need to seek some further medical care. As the wound begins to dry out, then you got to make that decision. Is it time to let this thing scab over? How long can you tolerate a wet dressing? So road rash can drag on, but there's no reason you can't ride with it, right? It can drag on and you can be, if, you, if you're watching the tour right now, you see guys bandaged for the entire week. They crash the first day and they're, they're still wearing their dressings at the end of the tour. Or tours long enough that sometimes those dressings, those wounds heal before the end of the tour. So just make sure that you obey the signs of potential infection. All right, guys. Well, I know, you know, I'm a cyclist. It's my, my first love in the world, but not everybody that listens to our show is, is a cyclist only. So runners and swimmers, we're going to talk about some stuff for you. And um, I don't swim much. So let's move to running next. What are some of the common maladies that a runner sees and, and how do we prevent them or how do we deal with them once they've occurred? I see a lot of chafing with runners. You know, you're sweating to death. You're running these like, you know, marathons or these endurance length um, rather than sprints. And you see that that sweat and that salt, the, you know, breaks down the epidermal uh, barrier. Once again, it's always about breaking down the epidermis, but in your body folds, you know, where you've got armpit folds, you've got thigh folds, you got butt folds, you got boob folds, you got all the folds. Those are the areas that that shaping starts to create a breeding ground for yeast. And we all have yeast on our skin. That's normal. It's part of our normal skin flora, just like staph is. 
But too much of that starts to break down the skin and creates a rash situation called intertrigo, which is basically a yeast infection. And it can be painful. It could be burning and red and just basically like you hear of jock rot, you know, or jock itch. It's, it's basically that. So I think it's important that, you know, that runners wear sweat wicking material. I mean, cotton's always ideal, but cotton does not wick away sweat. It actually just absorbs it. So I would recommend that. I would recommend getting those anti-shave creams. I don't know, you know, again, what brands you guys like, but I know my husband's always, you know, looks like a deodorant stick and he's always putting it on his nether regions. So that when he goes for his long runs, he doesn't have those skin problems afterwards. Yeah, I know. Gosh, when I was working at a fleet feet and dealing more with runners and triathletes that body glide, uh, I think that that's the stick that you're talking about was was really important and this is something i think that people can apply everywhere you know i know that people use it under under their arms right because their arm swing causes a little bit of chafing on their maybe their tricep and their chest or as you said in the nether regions you know i'm beginning to think that dermatology might be the grossest of the medical professions for for what it's worth but uh, (laughs) no no it's awesome (laughs) yeah you know a lot of times like patients get to that point where they already have this rash, you know, we have to prescribe them an anti-yeast cream with a little cortisone cream to help heal and then help reduce the over-accumulation of the yeast. I mean, it's an easy fix, but if you can prevent it, that's always better, right? Yeah. And and that's where maybe some itchiness, some redness, those are the signs that you're looking for that say, hey, maybe you should go see somebody for this. And you know, is, is this something that you should just treat topically, like go down to the pharmacy or, or do you need to start seeing dermatologists here? Well, I mean, I have a lot of patients who start off with like just the -the over-the-counter stuff and they'll get like, you know, Lamisil or they'll get hydrocortisone. They'll make their own little MacGyver concoction. And a lot of times it works. A lot of times patients will get like just those dusting powders, like Zeazorb is one of those like antifungal like powders for your shoes. You can put it in your body folds to prevent. But I think when you add powder before you go for a sweaty run, it just turns into a gross soupy mess. So So I think like, you know, always try treating at home if you know what's going on with your skin. But if you get to the point where things aren't healing, then yeah, an appointment to the dermatologist would be great. The dermatologist is your friend. Yes. (laughs) So when I think runners, I think two things. And one are toe and toenail issues. And then the other thing is blisters. Is this stuff that you're seeing in your clinic? and, And how do we work with it? Oh, yeah. Well, so in terms of toes, like, I know my husband has a runner toe, which I'm always like, that's a huge callus that I just want to work (laughs) after. And he's like, don't touch it. Don't touch it. I need it. It's his protective little, you know, padding. But a lot of toenail issues I see, I see a lot of hematomas, uh, which is basically an accumulation of blood under the nail plate. So you've got your nail bed and then your nail plate sits on top. If you've got poorly fit fitting shoes, they're too tight and you've got that pounding pavement situation going at all times, you can develop a hematoma and lose your nail. I see a lot of times what we call paronychias, which is just inflammation of the skin around the nail. So you get these like painful red skin with a little bit of pus drainage along the edge. Think of it almost like a hangnail, if you will, where just it hurts, you know, when you go to touch it. And it's basically a bacterial and again, a yeast inflammation situation because of the trauma to that nail. And then last but not least, I see a lot of people with like nail bed lacerations. Just, you know, it's all that mechanical wear and tear that causes 
toenail problems. And is this something that is this just about better fitting shoes or, or how do we treat, you know, maybe take the hematoma, for example, is, is this something that, you know, you have to see a dermatologist for and maybe they're draining that because you don't want to lose your nail, right? At, at the end of the day, you want to try to keep your toenail or you want to get rid of that baby. I mean, you want to keep your toenail, but a lot of times that hematoma just lifts it up and you're, you're just lost, you know, your toenail just goes bye-bye and a new one grows in. It just takes a long time to grow in and it's painful when you're waiting for that to come in. But I don't typically see a lot of toenail problems because people either take care of it or they just dismiss it as not a big deal. I've never really drained a hematoma unless it was painful for somebody. So for something like that, I've never seen anyone come to my office asking me to drain their hematoma of their nail. Now, I got a question for you guys because, you know, there's silicone toe pads, which I don't know, do they even stick on? Like if you're running and you're sweating, do those silicone toe pads even stick on when someone's performing a long race? This is way outside my jurisdiction. I don't run anything long. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I really don't know what you do to prevent all these issues. I would say definitely, you know, proper fitting shoes. Maybe if there's time to do a sock change, if it gets all sweaty and gnarly in there do that. But again, most athletes I know, they're so competitive. They just, they just keep on trucking because they'll deal with their problems later because they want to win. Right. So. Well, I'm, I'm going to give a real easy one, which I have learned the hard way because on my, my right foot, I have lost my big toenail five times now. What? Yeah. Keep your toenails trimmed and keep them really short. Yes. Because yes. what happens to me is I'm in a race, I'm pushing really hard and, uh, uh, several times I've just caught the toenail on the shoe and it takes it right off oh. inside the shoe. No, this is true. Um, yeah, because if your nail is beyond your skin, that has more of a chance to lift, right? So keeping it short, there's no lifting at all. So yeah, this <laughs> dermatology I love the reactions man. I'm seeing on Rob. I, no, the the best part is I I love that you aren't phased by any of this. Like that you dermatology is your calling, right? I'm I'm like squirming over here I thinking. Mean, I love it. Nothing grosses me out, but yeah. <laughs> it's not for everybody. Well, <laughs> I will certainly tell you if there's ever a call for for foot models in Boulder, I'm not getting the job. Yeah. No, you're you're the what not to do. Like uh, yes, example. I'm the before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's. I don't like toenails. Let's move off from toenails. Um, how about blisters? What the heck do we do with a blister? Well, then that, this is a situation when if you've got a painful blister and it's just putting so much pressure and you're like, I got to relieve it somehow. You get a sterile needle, you pop that sucker and drain that fluid out. And that fluid could be either blood or it could be just um, what we call serosanguinous, which is more of a clear sterile fluid. But I mean, it's definitely, again, from poor fitting shoes or wearing those socks that are just saturated in sweat and water. And again, like there's really nothing you can do about it. Once you get it, you get it. And all you can do about it is just let it heal or pop it and let that dry scab fall off on its own eventually. But pop it, pop it and leave the skin on, right? You don't want to remove that layer and Absolutely not. Because that skin is basically your band-aid, right? If you remove that skin, even though it's dead and necrotic at this point, you're removing your body's own Band-Aid and you're opening that now to infection, to bacterial infections mainly. So I guess the last sport that I think is important to talk about here is swimmers. I know they have some of their own unique challenges. 
I don't know many of them because most of my challenge with swimming is just keeping my head above water. <laughs> I know survival. Um, <laughs> yes. The biggest thing I do with swimmers is just, you know, the wetsuit, right? So you've got the wetsuit that's providing that second skin for either protect you from the weather and the water or the temperature in the water or just to protect your skin from all that excessive exposure to chlorine or salt water. The biggest problem that I ever see is again, that shaping, right? Getting that road rash right along the neck where there's that constant rubbing of the fabric or the neckline against that neck as you're doing your strokes. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing I see with uh, swimmers is when they're wearing that wetsuit, they've got thing that's shaping around their arms, around their neck, around their ankles. And I think, you know, from what I understand from my husband, the best thing to do is again, using that is it that body glide or that chafing cream? Just getting it on anywhere and everywhere that you might be ripping that wetsuit on and off of you and where there's that junction of cloth against skin. Something you mentioned as you were just talking was, was I believe, salt water and chlorine. How do those chemicals, I guess maybe salt water is not a chemical, but how does that affect our skin? I'm not a swimmer. I've, I've obviously swum in pools and whatnot, but I could only imagine that you're doing some damage when you're swimming in chlorine water every day. How, how do we prevent that damage or, or deal with it? So I see a lot of patients who have really sensitive skin or they have a history of uh, eczema or atopic dermatitis, which is a fancy way of saying eczema. And that chlorine really dries out the skin. And so I encourage people who are in the chlorine, whether it's for recreational or long-term you know, endurance things, once they get out of this pool to rinse the body off of that chlorine, not just water, preferably a mild soap, and get that chemical and that, you know, potentially dehydrating product off of the skin and then to moisturize immediately afterwards. So, you know, not everyone's affected by the chlorine, but a lot of people are and they start to get all rashy from it, especially if they're in it all summer long or if they're in it all year long. And I don't know if you can speak to this. I've certainly seen some, maybe more hair care product that's marketed directly to swimmers because of the chlorine. Is there anything unique about a mm-hmm. particular shampoo that helps out or is it whatever you're using is perfect, just make sure you're using it? Yes, whatever you're using is perfect. Like my daughter, she swims uh, you know, twice a week at the local swim center and you know her hair definitely gets really dry and brittle from all that chlorine. So I tend to tell her before she puts her swim cap on to put a conditioner in her hair before she throws a swim cap on so that, you know, if any water does get into her cap, which it always does, at least her hair doesn't become brittle over time and straw-like. Great. I think the other thing that you see with swimmers, right, if we move beyond chlorine is they're kind of wet all the time. They're in a wet environment. I think that, you know, I was talking with some people on our staff and, uh, you know, farming, farming for topics here you know, and somebody mentioned goggle rot. I had never heard of this before. I don't know if that's a, an industry term, but, you know, she described it as what seems like it might be like a fungal infection that occurs, or at least because of an abrasion around where your goggles are around your eyes. And um, she said, you can see in some people, yeah, that they just have like these red lines right where their goggles are. Yeah. And actually, I don't, I've never heard of that term either. I'd asked my husband about that one. I'm like, what the <laughs> heck is goggle rot? And he's like, never heard of it. And so I don't know if it's necessarily a fungal infection. You know, our skin has yeast, like I said, but when I see 
that ring around the eyes like a raccoon, like to me, it's more of a contact dermatitis. Okay. That maybe that person is more allergic to the rubber or the latex that that goggle is made out of. Or it's a frictional thing again, like where you just got that constant abrasion going against those tight fitting goggles and it just irritates the skin and you get the, you know, the red scaly skin like in and around that area. And it's, you know, it's simple to fix. However, it's not simple when you're truly allergic to maybe what your goggles are made out of. (laughs) I had a scuba diver lady, oh God, years ago, she came to see me because she's like every year at the same time, I get this rash around my face. And so I asked her about her hobbies and she's like, why scuba dive? And she's like, I've been scuba diving all my life. But for some reason, all of a sudden, she was allergic to the rubber in her scuba gear. And, you know, I was like, you've got two choices here. You either deal with it and continue to do what you love or you stop doing it, right? And so, of course, she continued it, but was ready to deal with the consequences of it. That's all that matters. Before we get into our final suggestions, let's hear from ex-pro Stephen Hyde and his overall suggestions about taking care of your skin when you're training. Man, sunscreen. And I'll tell you, I hate it. I hate sunscreen. It is awful feeling on my skin. I hate like my hair sticking down on my arms and I hate the feeling of sweat pouring out of it. But put it on. Like, don't be a baby. Just put the sunscreen on. I, you know, I, I watched multiple people in my family and my friends get skin cancer cut off of them and they spend a quarter of the time that I do in the sun. So, you know, one thing that I've done in the last couple of years uh, in my old age is I wear a lot more long sleeves. You know, if, if it's marginal in terms of, of temperature, I'll just push the long sleeve. You know, I can I can handle uh, sunscreen on my legs a whole lot more than I can on my face and my arms. So I just, I just go with the long sleeve. It eventually kind of starts cooling off once the sweat soaks in. So that's good. <laughs> There are more female athletes in endurance sports than ever before. Yet, until recently, female athletes simply followed the advice and protocols that have been designed and tested on men. This is now rapidly changing, and there are a host of experts bringing light to the perils and pitfalls associated with female athletes following guidelines that are male-specific. Check out our latest Craft of Coaching module, Coaching Female Athletes, for expert guidance on coaching women. So we're getting toward, you know, the end of the episode. We did a, a great conversation about sun, how that damage can lead to sunburns and photo aging and skin cancer. We talked about some specific sports, but what I'd love to do now is to really to zoom out, take a big picture look. We're all people. How do we just take care of our skin better in general, regardless of whether or not we're an athlete? But what are just some basic skincare tips, things that you should be doing so that you have healthier skin throughout your life? Sure. I'm just going to start with the basics, a shower, right? So everyone should be showering every day. I think people tend to like the extreme temperature of their water, you know, really scalding hot because it feels good, but it actually dries out your skin. So I usually recommend in the shower to go lukewarm water, to choose a mild soap, you know, anything perfumey and antibacterial can be a little caustic to the skin. So choosing a mild cleanser that maybe doesn't have all the bells and whistles and smells to it would be a better choice. And to moisturize when they get out of the shower so they keep that skin nice and supple. Because as we get older, we tend to dry out. Um, And if we're doing other things like, you know, swimming in chlorine water, that's going to further dry you out. So just starting with that. Okay. That's number one. Number two, eating a healthy diet. 
you know, like food is medicine, in my opinion. And I think you can watch how you eat, what you eat to maintain a healthy skin. Yeah, I I tend to coach my teenagers, especially who have acne, on, you know, avoiding processed food, avoiding the high sugar contents, drinking more water, less Gatorade, eating a diet less in saturated fats and less fried foods. And just think of like a healthy Mediterranean diet, right? Eating more healthy fats and not Chick-fil-A fats. <laughs> and if you do that, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many patients I see who have acne who don't need the antibiotics because they've changed their diet around and then their skin has cleared up magically from just that. Because all those foods I mentioned, dairy, sugar, fats, the saturated fats, unhealthy fats, they all cause an inflammatory state, right? And so a lot of our skin ailments are inflammatory. And so moderating what you eat and bringing that inflammatory state down, your skin magically clears up. Not always, but most often you'll see a change in your skin if you you follow a good, healthy Mediterranean diet. And then in terms of protection, we've talked about sunscreen being important, right? I think every day, everyone, no matter what time of the year you're in or what climate you're in, you need to wear sunscreen every day. UVA, UVB protection every morning. And then you know, a lot of patients will ask me about, well, what do you think about vitamin C or what do you think about retinol? I think vitamin C is a great antioxidant and it offers that extra layer of protection against free radicals. And so I tend to recommend vitamin C and sunscreen as your morning routine. And then at nighttime, I recommend doing a retinol if anyone's concerned about anti-aging or how do I reverse some of the damage I've already done to my skin? I think retinol is a wonderful tool. Can I ask, when you say vitamin C, are you talking topical vitamin C or supplementing in your diet? I'm talking more topical, but of course, vitamin C in your citrus uh, fruits is very healthy overall. So, But I'm talking mainly topical serums that contain vitamin C. Yeah. And then you mentioned retinol at the end there. I've heard... Retinol can be a little bit difficult and make your skin more sensitive to sun exposure. Is that true? And is that why you're recommending it at night and not in the morning? Correct. So, you know, retinol acts like a chemical peel. It's like a vitamin A derivative. And when you're applying it, you're getting almost this microscopic peel to the skin. It's removing, you know, the top dead skin cell layers. And so that makes you more sensitive in general, right, to the sun. And the sun actually denatures the retinol ingredient. So this is why we don't recommend it during the daytime. We recommend it at night so that you don't have the denaturization of the vitamin A. One other thing I'd love to talk about, and you had mentioned shower temperature earlier. I shower like twice a day, every day, because like I shower first thing in the morning and then I exercise and I shower after that. Is there anything, should I not be doing that? Should I not be washing my hair or using soap? How, how do I keep myself from all of this exposure to keep myself healthier? I too shower two to three times a day. I don't know how I have any skin left on me, honestly. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, if again, if you're just doing the mild soaps, the lowers water temperature and you're moisturizing after you get out of the shower, you can shower eight times a day. It's not a problem. But I think where people run into the problem is they're taking the hot scalding showers. They're not applying moisturizer afterwards. And that's when the skin starts to really dry out and cause rashes potentially. Now, in terms of hair, when you over shampoo, you 
tend to, again, dry out the scalp and dry out the hair. And so I typically recommend just shampooing the scalp three times a week. If you're sweating a lot, then I would say shampooing every day would be fine because when you sweat, you increase your sebum production, which then can lead to dandruff and you know, oily scalp. And so in that situation, shampooing the scalp every day is not a, a problem. But if you're not sweating all the time, then three times a week is more than enough for shampooing the hair. Well, I hate to say it, but we're a little over an hour. So I think it's time to wrap up this show. Thank you for all the great suggestions and advice that you've given. Like I said, this is our first time diving into the, the subject of skin. So this has been really revealing even for, for Rob and myself, and it's been appreciated. But we finish out every show with a one minute. What's the most salient thing that you'd like our, our listeners to, to take from the episode? So let's start with you. What, what would you like everybody to remember from this? I just would like everyone to remember that daily sun protection is paramount, especially if you're training in it. And um, it's really easy to find these sunscreens these days. They're a lot more user-friendly. They're a lot more elegant to apply on the skin. So there really should be no excuse as to why someone should not use it. Okay, so I, I definitely think people should aim for looking for a sunscreen that's mineral-based, that covers both the UVA and UVB spectrum. I think they need to at least think about between an SPF of 30 and 50 because anything below is just not going to cut it and anything above is unnecessary. And I really can't stress the importance of reapplication every two hours. I mean, that's where people run into the most problems. And by whatever means necessary, if that means just spraying it on after the original application with the cream, fine. That's better than nothing, like I had said earlier. So that's number one. Number two would be if you are exposed or if you have a history, if you are fair skinned or, you know, just exposure, an accumulation of exposure, I think having a dermatologist do your yearly skin checks will be one less thing that you need to stress out about. You know, let us stress out about your skin so that you don't have to. And so making those yearly skin checks would be another important thing for those athletes that are exposed for years and years and years. That's about my two most important take-homes about that. I think that was a good take-home, so appreciate it. Rob? Yeah, I'll hop in next. I think that there are so many great take-homes from this and that everyone who's listening probably has something that's very salient to them. But the thing I want to do is just emphasize what Leela said last. And our risk of skin cancer or long-term bad effects from the sun they have been occurring and accumulating our whole life. Everything starts when you're a kid. And I know, unfortunately, I suffered a very severe sunburn when I was a child. And you hope and you wish that, oh, well, that was back in the past. It's not going to affect me today. But we need to, unfortunately, we need to understand that it does. And we need to use that to make better decisions as we move forward. We can't necessarily change our past, but we can begin affecting our future by beginning appropriate skincare and sun routines now. But also, as you said, get checked out by someone. I remember the first time, and I, I have yearly uh, skin checks with my dermatologist, but I remember I, I put it off for a couple years. There was a few years where I'm like, I know I really should do this, but... And there was maybe a little bit of a self-conscious nature, a little bit of a, well, I don't have a problem now nature. And I think that a lot of people get into that mindset, 
But it's better to begin this before there's a problem than to begin this after there's a problem. And I think oftentimes when we talk about maybe melanoma and skin cancers, catching that stuff early is life-changing for the better, you know? So get out there, do it this year. It's the middle of summer. You can go get a skincare check now and get one next year and get one the year after that. But it's important for your overall health. May is Melanoma Awareness Month. And so like... You know, I usually tell patients, like, maybe take your birthday month and make that your yearly skin exam. Or, you know, if you think of melanoma, think of May, May and melanoma, right? M&M. Make May your, you know, annual. So It's a good way to do it because I can tell you from experience, I became very aware of melanoma in January after my 50th birthday. (laughs) My takeaway on this, we have talked in the past on the show about how I'll have athletes tell me they that they want to get really serious and they're going to bump their training volume up to 18 or 20 hours a week. And my response is always, I get you have the time to do that, but do you have the tools, do you have the processes in place to be able to handle that? And often the answer to that is no. So I think maybe some of our listeners have, have listened to this episode and gone, skin care, that's kind of mundane. But I could tell you, if there's one thing that I've seen stop people from getting serious about their training, it's because of that skincare. I have seen more than a few cyclists bump up to 20 hours a week. They get two weeks in of that sort of volume. And by the third week, they are a mess of saddle sores and blisters and abrasions. And their next week is five hours because they can't even get on the bike anymore. I certainly remember one of the first training camps I did the final day was a seven-hour ride, and I think I sat on my saddle a total of 30 minutes over that seven hours because <laughs> I was in that much pain. And I could tell you all the experienced riders at the center had very detailed, from experience, practices to take care of the skin so that they could keep sitting on that saddle. You know, One last thing I'll throw in if this helps convince people. We've talked before about how there's this type of inappropriate inflammation that you see in endurance athletes that's called SIRS, uh, where they just get this systemic inflammation. It kind of looks like sepsis. Well, sepsis is the actual sepsis is your body fighting bacteria. And if you have these abrasions and you're getting bacteria into the system, you're getting yeast into the system, your body has to fight that. And that can contribute to that inappropriate inflammation. And that's going to prevent you from training. That's going to hurt your training adaptation. So this sounds mundane, But I'm honestly going to say as an endurance athlete, it's one of the most important things you can do. And with that, Layla, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this. Sorry, I couldn't speak to the all the athletic problems because I'm not a huge athlete myself, but hopefully I imparted some wisdom. You most certainly did. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at at FastTalkLabs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Dr. Layla Lankarani, Ryan Bolton, Stephen Hyde, Andy Pruitt, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.